You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We're recording this episode on Thursday the 9th of November. And this week we're going to talk about why the far-right Sweden Democrat leader Jimmy Åkesson used an artificial intelligence video translator to broadcast a speech in Arabic. We'll talk about why Sweden's media subsidy system is in the news this week. We'll share some tips on how to beat the November gloom in Sweden. And finally, we'll check in with a crime reporter on the latest in Sweden's gang conflict and why there have been fewer deadly shootings and bombings in the past few weeks. I'm Paul Omani, and joining me today are our regular panellists, James Savage, who's with me here in Stockholm, and Becky Waterton, who's in our Malmö studio. How are you both? Yeah, very well, thanks. Cold and wet, but I'll survive. <laughs> Just before we get into news, we were talking among ourselves here about Historien om Sverige, the public broadcaster SVT's new 10-part series on Swedish history. And the first episode aired on Sunday night and people were angry about it on social media, weren't they? Why was it getting criticised? Well, because it was inevitable, wasn't it? I mean, SVT does a big series, you know, a, a huge sort of landmark series about Swedish history. Mm. So uh, the same year that Sweden is celebrating supposedly 500 years of existence, which it isn't. But anyway, it's 500 years since Gustav Vasa became king of Sweden. Right. And I think it was inevitable in this kind of situation, this was going to be scrutinized by everybody and everyone was going to have an opinion on it. It's, mm. And particularly in a time of culture wars, everyone has an opinion on these kinds of things. The opinions that people had varied. One opinion that's got a lot of attention is that some people were upset that dark-skinned people were chosen to play the earliest Swedes, the mm. earliest people who moved to Sweden. Now, for the critics, this was this was an, an example of political correctness gone mad. What the historians and the people behind the program are saying is no. What we what and what in fact the narrator says in this is that no, the the, the earliest people who came to Sweden were dark skin. Yeah. And archaeology, there, there's good archaeological evidence to show that the earliest people who came to Sweden were dark skinned. And then, you know, over many years of evolution, their skin tone lightened to make to get as much light into their bodies as possible yeah. in this very dark <laughs> country. So that's one bit of criticism. But it's been criticized by everybody. People have cr- criticized it for being for, for the, the music for being bombastic, for the tone being um sort of patronizing, like you're talking to down to children. Someone criticised. There was one. There was one um, critic uh, in one of the newspapers who criticised the actors for having uh, shaved their legs and their armpits, um, <laughs> and, and for the on, in the women in the case of the women and in the case of the men for having hipster beards. Um, you know, 
it was just the inevitable kind of criticism that comes with this. But I think most people who've looked at it, most people who've watched the first episode think it was actually quite good. Yeah. It was quite interesting. It didn't t- teach us an awful lot that we didn't already know if you've if you're vaguely interested in history and you've read around a bit, it was nicely done and reminded you of some things that perhaps you'd forgotten and perhaps taught you a few new things. And, you know, it does have historians and archaeologists who are coming on and giving different angles on on the story. So it's, you know, got some vague, I wouldn't say it's got, it's not an academic programme at all. It's popular history, but it, you know, it does try to, to give itself a little bit of academic credibility. Yeah, I mean, they leaned on, I saw in the closing credits that they leaned on 300 researchers when they were making the programme. So, exactly. you know, they, they haven't just pulled it out of nowhere. No, exactly. Did you see it, Becky? I have not seen it, but it's on my list of things to watch. So we've got a lot to talk about today. So let's get cracking and we'll start with uh, the Sweden Democrats who this week published a video to YouTube of a recent speech by leader Jimmy Okason. And what was unusual about it was that they used AI to generate an Arabic version. So if you watch the video, you'll hear Jimmy Okason's voice speaking Arabic. Unexpected, to say the least, given the party's traditional anti-immigration stance. So first off, Becky, what does he actually say in the speech? Well, I don't speak Arabic, but the well, from what I've read, it's a translation of his 13-minute long speech to the nation, which he held a few weeks ago in Swedish, where he basically says that people that don't adapt to Swedish culture should go home. I listened to the Swedish speech yesterday, so I'll, I'll go a little bit further into what he says in that, um, which, again, is the same as the Arabic one. So he starts basically by saying that the world is going to hell. The Sweden of mm. his childhood was the world's, world's safest and richest country, but the Sweden he's raising his 10-year-old in is more like the Wild West. He talks about the high number of shootings and explosions the country's been experiencing, um, which yeah. he describes as the top of the iceberg, symptoms of a greater problem caused by irresponsible policies and irresponsible politicians, by which he means the decision to accept large numbers of asylum seekers in 2015, among other things. He argues that immigrants in Sweden should be forced to adapt to Sweden and support themselves. And then he directly addresses people who have foreign backgrounds, saying Sweden is a land of opportunity. It offers better possibilities for a chance at a new life than many other countries in the world and that you have to do your duty before you can demand your rights. And he kind of links right. this to, to Sweden have very gener- having very, very generous healthcare systems and you know benefit systems and things like that. He says that those of us with foreign backgrounds need to understand that we've come to Svenskarnas land, so the land of the Swedes. Yeah. We cannot continue to live in the same way we did in our homelands and we should treat Sweden and Swedish culture with respect and be thankful for the opportunities Sweden has given us as we are guests in Sweden. He says many immigrants have done this, have raised our children to be Swedes. Interestingly, he doesn't say that we have become Swedes. He only says that our children are Swedes. But there are lots of us that haven't. He kind of links this to crime. He says maybe you've just come here to commit a crime or live off welfare and the money that hardworking Swedes have put into the shared pot of taxes. Then he moves on to asylum seekers, saying that they are forcing Sweden to become more like the countries they escaped from. They don't try hard enough to integrate. They commit crimes and they bring their conflicts with them to Sweden. And then he directly addresses asylum seekers in particular and says, I'm going to be completely straight and honest. I don't think you should be here. To me, you are not welcome in Sweden and I think you should seriously consider moving somewhere else. Why not back to your homeland where you'll probably be happier? And then basically he addresses Swedes, Sweden and friends of Sweden, encouraging them to help him return Sweden to how it was before, saying that that would be the best outcome for Sweden, Europe and the world at large. This sounds like typical Sweden Democrat fair, really. So why why did the Sweden Democrats publish this Arabic version of Okasan's speech? What were they trying to achieve? Well, their argument is that there are a lot of people living in Sweden who don't speak Swedish or follow Swedish news. 
and they wanted to address this group directly. We can assume that by this they mean Arabic speakers are a particular group they want to address rather than immigrant as a whole, or they probably could have been more effective translating the speech into English. Somewhat paradoxically, the Sweden Democrats are strongly opposed to government agencies providing information in other languages and have previously complained that the public broadcasters Sveriges Radio broadcast news in Arabic. But in this case, they claim that offering their speech in Arabic is better from a democratic point of view, as they're not just getting the kind of the media's version of the story, is what their um, mm. head of communications said. So the head of communications, Joachim Wallerstein, also said, uh, told SVT that they're planning on spreading the speech abroad. Um, so it's, right. been, it's been translated into Arabic so they can spread it in other countries and discourage people who are considering coming to Sweden from doing so. And they have had some pushback on this, haven't they? We had an article on The Local this week written by Mahmoud Aga, who's the managing editor of the Arabic language Swedish news site Al Kompis. What did he have to say about the speech? Yeah, so this was an article originally posted on Al Kompis in Arabic and they let us post a translated version on our site. So essentially Aga argues in his article that despite the speech being in Arabic, the real target audience is actually Swedes. And if you look at the YouTube video where it was published... Swedes have watched and commented on it in a much greater number than Arabic speakers living in Sweden. Aga argues that when Yumi Olkerson addresses his listeners in Arabic and tells them your guests here, he's undermining the values of cultural pluralism on which modern Sweden was founded. He doesn't mm. acknowledge refugees and immigrants' new role as a part of this pluralism because to, to Olkerson, they are merely guests. And he argues that Yumi Olkerson is essentially saying, look at how I can address a group of immigrants in their own language and teach them a lesson about Swedish culture and European values. Look mm. at how I can praise those who have integrated and point my finger at criminals and the unemployed and show them the exit from our country and society. And finally, uh, Agar says that Yumi Olkerson distributes this praise and blame like the leader in some sort of dictatorship. He's actually creating more polarisation by blaming previous governments and making this kind of speech now that he's in a position of power instead of actually doing something, doing anything to help integration succeed or kind of looking more closely into why people have to live in vulnerable areas or segregated areas and why people have fewer opportunities than uh, than elsewhere. Yeah, that, that article uh, by Mahmoud Aga is really well worth reading and we'll add a link in the notes to the article. Thanks for that roundup, Becky. Moving on, let's talk now about Sweden's system of media subsidies. And James, I'm going to lean on your expertise here as the chairman of the Swedish Magazine Publishers Association. As I know, this is a subject you're giving a lot of attention to at the moment because the Swedish parliament is going to vote next week on a legislative proposal to reform the system. If you could just tell us first, what's the story behind Sweden's system of press subsidies? How long has it been around and why was it created? Well, it's been around in one form or another since 1965. And that started in response to the closure of a large number of local newspapers since sort of the 1950s. Mm. Um, a lot of these newspapers had connections to the political parties, and it was seen as important to have a variety of newspapers in different parts of the country with different editorial lines. Right. So you didn't just have a Social Democrat newspaper in one area and a Centre Party newspaper, as it often was, in another area, but you had you had sort of one of each. And this system kind of grew over the years. And by 2020, the state was doling out 1.5 billion kroner to media. Mm. So quite a lot of money. Bonnier News, which is one of the biggest media house in Sweden, got 28% of right. all of this money. There are different kinds of support. So there's support for technical development, for distribution, but then also for day-to-day -day costs. Okay. Um, and it was decided that you know it was time to 
change this and to make it a little bit more targeted. Okay, and, and what are the changes that are being proposed? The changes that are being proposed are particularly in response to digitalization, and also to the fact that local newspapers are having a very tough time in Sweden, just as they are elsewhere, and ad money has slipped away. I think most newspapers would 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 um, agree that ad money is much harder to come by yeah. than it used to be. Competition from Google, competition from Facebook. Yeah. The old media subsidies were um, very much focused on paper newspapers. And the new subsidies will be technology neutral, and they'll be very much focused on supporting local newspapers. So there's a tiny little clause that many um, national publications have been clinging on to, but also kind of scratching their heads about because it's a bit vague, which says that there will also be support apart from to local newspapers to national newspapers, which are of particular importance to media diversity. So whatever that means. But the emphasis, I say, is very much on local newspapers. So there is a risk here that a lot of national publications that have survived on press um, and media um, subsidies up to now uh, could lose out. Right. And so who are the winners and losers in all this? So the winners are many local newspapers, which will get support and in many cases wouldn't have managed without. Um, But the losers are national, particularly niche publications, publications that, for instance, have a particular political viewpoint or a lot of magazines that have been sort of completely left out of this, even Mm. though magazines and newspapers are kind of converging, particularly online. Mm. It's very hard these days to sort of really tell where a magazine stops and a newspaper starts. They're Mm. often publishing every day. They're often publishing uh, multiple articles. They're often covering the same subjects as newspapers. So there is a concern there on the part of niche publications and magazines that the newspapers will be subsidized Mm. to compete um, directly with them. But there is, you know, there's also there's also concern on the part of some some broader based national newspapers as well, because nobody really knows exactly who is going to qualify for this um, support. And the other problem is that there is going to be a gap between the old support finishing and the new support starting. Mm. So some newspapers that are particularly dependent on it, even if they perhaps potentially would qualify in the future, might not survive the months um, in between the old and the new subsidy regime coming in. Is it unusual to have a press subsidy system like this? There are a lot, there are numerous other countries that have it, including many European countries. I mean, you know, I think there was a handful as Belgium had it and I think the Netherlands had it too. So it's not that unusual. It's not it's not uncontroversial. The laws that Sweden is now passing have had to go through um, European Commission approval because Subsidizing businesses is not generally seen as kosher um, no. at, at, at the um, in, by the European Commission. It's, it's something. It's very much the exception should be the exception rather than the rule. But um, no, I mean it is is not unknown of in other countries to have some form of press subsidy. Mm. And clearly, I think lots of governments are looking at this. Governments generally are interested in keeping the media. Running. I mean, you know, politicians mm. love politicians love love media. Politicians have a sort of symbiotic relationship with media, and in a at a time when many media houses have a are having a very difficult time, I think you know politicians in lots of places are thinking, well, you know, what is our role in all of this? Right. Yeah. Because does this help counteract news deserts? It's a term we've heard a lot in recent years, where local newspapers are dying all over the world. Yes. What. I think most people would agree is negative is if you have important political assemblies, local councils, mm. where nobody is scrutinizing what they're doing. Yeah. Nobody is reporting on what they are doing. Nobody is able to tell you whether the stuff that is happening in your local area is working 
or isn't working. Right. So when you go to vote in the next local election, you're voting blind if there's no, if there's no local journalism. Mm. There's also this issue of, of, of you know niche publications that perhaps are covering specialisms that otherwise wouldn't be covered. So if you take, for example, trade publications, if you take very sort of nerdy coverage of, like, of, of, of for instance, the civil service or, right. or, or those kinds of those those kinds of um, issues, and there are publications that cover those in Sweden. But they maybe need subsidies to survive. It might not be mm. the sort of thing that mainstream newspapers cover. So is it in the sort of democratic national interest that there are publications that do this? And are they commercially viable in, in a country the size of Sweden mm. without some form of subsidy? Right. Um, and I think you know many people have concluded that they are not. And that is why perhaps some kind of subsidy is necessary. Okay, really interesting. Thanks for giving us uh, the lowdown on the media subsidies in general and the reform plan. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out next week. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, we need to talk about November, really. Uh, like after the <laughs> after the clocks go back at the end of October, darkness comes fast, and it's safe to say that it's not everybody's favorite month in Sweden. But the fact that it comes around once a year means we do have some experience of finding ways to manage it, particularly with the help of the locals' readers. Can you tell us, Becky, some of our readers' best tips for getting through November in one piece? I can. So this is from an article that we originally wrote way back in 2015. But to be honest, I don't think November in Sweden has changed much since then. So I think we no. could probably still use these recommendations. Some readers said it's the best thing that the best thing to do is to get outside, whether that's for a run or to do exercise or to just enjoy the weather when it's not raining. I've been trying to force myself to cycle instead of getting the bus, even when it's raining like today. But I'm not sure it's making me appreciate November more. Um <laughs> I think it's mainly just making me hate it even more. Um, maybe I chose the wrong day to cycle. Um, don't, don't cycle, mental note. I, I'm actually cycling as well. Yeah. I, think it, I think it is actually is a good idea, even though, yeah, the weather is not fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that old Swedish saying of no bad weather, just bad clothes. And I think I definitely did not have the right clothes today because I am completely drenched. Anyway, on the topic of clothing, there was another reader who said that they like to try and jazz up their clothing a bit, you know, inject a pop of colour, wear their favourite top or trousers or whatever uh, mm. or a fun accessory just to kind of bring a little bit of joy uh, into the everyday and also just try to find things to be grateful for so life doesn't feel as gray and dull as it can do in November. Another tip was trying to kind of get out and socialize as much as possible which I think can be difficult in November in Sweden as you are tempted to just kind of crawl into hibernation under a blanket on the sofa and emerge when the sun returns in April. I think one of my favorite things to do 
in November or just kind of winter in general in, in general in Sweden is light candles because it it just kind of it makes the darkness nice because you it, it's mm. more like oh it's so cozy we can light candles now instead of like why is it dark at 4 p.m. Like I go to work in the dark, I come home in the dark and I wake up, you know, everything's always dark. So I think that is actually a genuinely good tip, lighting candles and just kind of, you know, fairy lights, maybe, yeah, and try and make it feel a bit more cheerful. Yep, those are good tips from readers. Is there anything else you'd add from your own personal experience? Um, Not from my own personal experiences. I think our readers have covered most of them, but I did like the article that Emma wrote this week on Novent, which is essentially the new supposed Swedish lifestyle trend of starting to celebrate Christmas or Advent, technically. It's made up of November and Advent uh, in November. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm going to start doing it myself as I don't want to be sick of Christmas by the time it actually arrives. But I do like the idea that Swedes have found yet another way to cheer themselves up during November. And I think it, it is needed, I think, as anyone else who lives here will agree. All right. Well, we'll uh, definitely add a link to that article. I like how upbeat this is getting now. Can we stay? <laughs> let's stay positive. <laughs> let's let's chat. Let's chat about a story we had in Gothenburg this week, and um, that brightened up our November when we read it. And it's a story that took place at the city's main library. Can you tell us what happened, Becky? Yeah. So essentially, the public library in Gothenburg was meant to be closed on All Saints weekend, but someone at the library had forgotten to lock one of the doors. So they must have got some kind of phone call telling them that there were people in the library because when one of the members of staff went in to check, they found out that people were just being completely normal. You know, there was there was people sitting there reading to their children. There were some people looking at books on the computers, reading newspapers. Uh, more than 400 people have visited the library. More than 255 wow. books had been borrowed. And <laughs> people just hadn't understood that it was closed and had just gone about their day as usual. And then... Um, the library's head of operations, Anna Karin Elf, told the, the local radio in Gothenburg that some people were quite surprised that the library felt quite empty. They were like, oh, there's no mm. staff here. <laughs> but no one, had actually, no one had actually considered the fact that they were meant to be closed. And yeah, she said that it was lovely that Gothenburgers just went into an empty library and were just so respectful of, of the library and treated it so lovingly. So that is really, I, I was quite happy to read that. It was a nice story. That's brilliant. That's a really heartwarming tale. It's just also a symptom of the fact that we have this bollocks national holiday in, <laughs> <laughs> on the 1st of November that you only get if you are someone who normally works on a Saturday. Yeah. So if you're someone who normally works Monday to Friday, this this holiday pops up in like one of one of a couple of contexts. The one that pops it pops up for most people uh, in the fact that Sistin Balagert is closed. So you go and buy try and buy booze on the first Saturday in November. <laughs> And it's closed. You're like, well, what's what's going on? Because nobody told me there was a holiday. I didn't get a holiday. I wonder how. But people... yes, if you work at Sistin Balaga or in a library, you get you get an extra holiday, and that's basically the only people who get the holiday. Maybe this was actually civil disobedience. I yeah, wonder, exactly. I wonder, protesting. I wonder what would have happened if someone had forgotten to lock the door at Sistin Balaga. I wonder if people would have lo- <laughs> lovingly gone in and just browsed the catalogue for beer, or if people would have just raided the entire shop. I don't know. I'm just I'll, borrowing this wine. Yeah, I'd, I'd have been. I'd have been there. Mine's got self-service <laughs> checkout. It'd have been fine. <laughs> oh yeah, they have that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, great. We have a link uh, to that article, don't we? We we wrote up that story about the library, so we can post that in the notes as well. 
All right. Well, let's let's leave the joy behind us. Uh, we're going to move on now to Sweden's ongoing gang conflict. And we'll talk in a few minutes about how the violence is changing the way people in Sweden think about using firearms for self-defense. But first, we're going to discuss the recent arrests of key members of Foxtrot, the gang behind many of this year's deadly attacks. Uh, We spoke a few weeks ago about the reported arrest in Iran of Rawa Majid, the leader of the network. And I chatted this week with Katrin Krantz, the crime reporter from the Expressen newspaper, who regular listeners might remember we had in the studio a few episodes ago on the 23rd of September, to be exact, if you'd like to hear her explain who some of the main players are. And this week I asked Katrin to talk us through the recent arrests and the impact they're having on the ongoing conflict. The recent wave of arrests started around October 25, when five of Majid's allies were arrested in Tunisia. They were suspected of possession of firearms and narcotics. They're also suspected of some kind of terror-related crimes that we don't fully understand the meaning of. But these people were in the close circle around Rawa Majid. Mm-hmm. There were some more arrests then as well after that. Yes, two weeks ago, a man was arrested in Serbia. He was a high-value target and had been for a long time by the police. And uh, he was seen as a central player in drug trafficking, but also uh, mostly maybe in arms dealing for Rabah Majid. So that was a very kind of heavy arrest. And then there was a fatal shooting in Sarajevo. Yes, there was a killing on the street in Sarajevo. That was about a week ago that another close ally of Rabah Majid's was shot in Sarajevo. And this was an assassination within the Foxtrot conflict. And uh, three people, Swedish citizens, were arrested shortly afterwards. And then there was one more arrest, I think it was last Saturday night in Istanbul. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was an arrest of Maximilian Rivkin, also a high-value target. He was from Mm. Malmö, the southern parts of Sweden, and he was wanted by the FBI and Interpol. This was a big crackdown on a large gang. So the arrest was, um, I think, around 40 people were arrested, and one of them was a Swedish citizen. That's a lot of arrests in a short space of time. How central to the functioning of the Foxtrot network are these people who've been arrested? All of them have played a key part in the organization, in the Foxtrot organization, and they have been central in taking care of Rawa Majid's business. They have also been central in the propaganda surrounding the network. And we have seen a lot of that recently, a lot of activities on social media uh, in trying to portray the organization as strong. And so there has also been a kind of public relations war going on at the same time as the actual war. And um, they have also been active in recruiting, for example, shooters. And these are also people who have been loyal to Rava Majid for many, many years. Mm. Um, given that these people are now in custody, um, do, do you think it's reasonable to conclude that the drop in violent activity that we've seen in recent weeks is connected to these arrests or is that too simplistic a view? I think the answer is both yes and no, because we still see a lot of activity. In fact, we there are so many minor fire attacks and uh, other attacks that we don't even get to know about them anymore. And mm. we see a lot of arrests from the Swedish police. Sometimes the police are interrupting, you know, confused teenagers running around about to commit crimes. It's very, it's kind of chaotic, but a, yeah. a lot of these crimes are being intercepted. But we definitely see a decrease 
in the most violent activities. And I think part of that explanation is, of course, these arrests, but also that a lot of people uh, simply have fled the country. And a lot of these secondary targets, such as family members, etc., they are no longer in the country. So it's been a month since the reported arrest of Rawa Majid, and we haven't heard anything from him since then. Does this spell the end of the Foxtrot network, or are there other people waiting in the wings to take over? What do you think this means for the future of Foxtrot? (laughs) It's very hard to tell, actually. Some of the top figures are gone, obviously. Mm. And uh, no one knows what has happened to Ravi Mayed. And every week, <laughs> no one hears from him. Of course, his, uh, I mean, what, what is Foxtrot? His number two, uh, Mustafa Al-Yuburi, uh, also called Ben Sama, he's still uh, out there and he's active on social media, etc. So he's um, still um, visible. But who knows what will happen and what will be left of Foxtrot? Maybe we see a decrease in this conflict, but of course, there will be other criminals, other gangs who uh, continue drug Mm. trafficking, for example. Are there any other important developments in the gang conflict we should be aware of at the moment? So we saw this big kind of crackdown from Turkey on this criminal gang where Rivkin was arrested. Maybe that indicates a change from the Turkish government. Maybe that this image of Turkey being a safe haven for criminal gangs could be over. That was Katrin Krantz, crime reporter for Expressen. And we'll move on now to how people in Sweden are reacting to the gang violence. A new study by Novus shows that 91% of people living in Sweden are worried about how violent crime is affecting the country. Let's look now at how else the recent wave of gang violence is affecting how people are thinking. James, are people worried about being the victim personally of violent crime? Most people are not. That's 71% say they're not worried personally about being the victim of violent crime. But 28% say that they are. Right. That's pretty much unchanged since the summer, but one in four is still quite a lot mm. um, to be personally worried about being a victim of violent crime. And, and, and perhaps the most pertinent figures are the ones you cited in the intro there, which is the very large number who say that they're worried about violent crime's effects on society as a whole. Yeah. There, people really are concerned. And one of the questions Novus asked is whether people thought they should be allowed to keep a firearm at home for self-defence. What was the outcome there? Well, 15% say yes, and Mm. a a higher number of men say that you should be able to keep Mm. a a firearm at home. I think it was 26% It was 26% of of men who said you should be able to keep a firearm at home for self-defence. Now, That's quite an interesting figure. It might be a more common opinion, perhaps somewhere like the US or Mm. or in the US, where where, where this is, you know, a really hot button political issue. It's not a hot button political issue in Sweden at all. But it's interesting to see that 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 viewpoint is is by no means a a marginal viewpoint. If, you know, one in four men say that they they think you should be able to keep a firearm at home for self-defense. And so the Novus analyst, uh, Torbjörn Sjöström, describes these as radical figures for Sweden. How does he explain this increased propensity to resort to self-defence? So firstly, it's due to an increased fear of crime. And then because he says, because people don't feel they can rely on police to come in an emergency. Mm. He also says, 
politicians have created an unrealistic expectation about what policy can do in the immediate term, which leaves people feeling disappointed and that perhaps they need to take matters into their own hands. However, I think it's worth bearing in mind here that a relatively high number of people in Sweden own guns. It's not uncommon in Sweden to own a gun. Mm. And you usually own that gun for the purposes of hunting. But I'm sure for a lot of people who have a gun, it's at the back of their heads that, well, if anything ever happened, I would have, I, w- I would, ha- I would have my gun. And so, you know, as a, as 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 a gun owning country, it's not necessarily, perhaps, that surprising that some people sort of think of um, think of guns in this way. Yeah. Um. And and you know, most of the guns that are kept in Sweden are still primarily for hunting purposes, but it's a large number of them. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening and make sure to hit the follow button in your podcast app to get the podcast every week. We'll have links to all the stories we discussed in the notes. Our panellists today were James Savage and Becky Waterton. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again next Saturday with another episode of Sweden in Focus. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.